stick at what you're passionate about. Stick at the thing that you've got a, you know, a dominant position in. Don't chase growth for growth's sake. In the last two years, that growth really has come. And our ability to capitalize on the opportunity is because we stayed true to what we set up to be. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Tom Hopkinson. Tom is the founder and CEO of Taylor Hopkinson, a specialist renewable energy recruitment consultancy based in Glasgow. They deliver executive search, permanent and contract recruitment and mobility services to market leading clients globally in order to deliver world-class renewable energy projects. They have offices in London, Valencia, Boston, Singapore, Taipei, and Mexico. And exciting news, in December, Brunel International acquired a 72% shareholding in the company, valuing Taylor Hopkinson at 32 million euros. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Mark. It's a pleasure to be, be here. Fantastic. And it's not often that we have that I have Scottish companies on, so it's really cool uh, <laughs> to have a you know uh, a local um, company, which is awesome. And uh, I'm sure we know m- quite a few people in common, but this is the first chance, that, first uh, time for us to really get to know each other. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm really looking forward to this. Um, Tom, can you tell me about like? how you got into recruiting and this whole um, industry kicked off for you? I've listened to a few of your podcasts, Mark, and obviously spoken to a lot of recruiters over the years. And I don't think it'll come as any surprise to anybody that I fell into it. Just like everybody else does, I don't think anyone leaves school saying uh, I'm going to be a recruitment consultant. I haven't met one yet anyway. I was uh, was the same as everyone else. I'd been traveling for a year. I had an English literature degree, didn't want to be a teacher, didn't couldn't afford to be a journalist uh, and uh, was working some dead-end jobs and ended up thinking, right, I need to start chipping away at this massive pile of debt that's building up. And um, I I ended up going to this um, recruitment interview and it was the last of sort of 14 or 15 interviews I'd done in a week. I'd sort of got my my finger out and thought, right, I'm doing something about this. And it was the only recruitment in- interview, and I'd, I'd always avoided them because there were so many adverts for so many recruitment consultants. My perception was, this must be a terrible job if, if everybody's <laughs> having to replace recruitment consultants. Um, so I, I'd, done, I'd gone through the week, and it got to Friday afternoon, and there was this interview, and I just I tried to find the office. It was right out of Leeds on the Ring Road, and I just couldn't find it. So I, I just turned around. I was on my way to pick up my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Angela, and uh, the phone rang and I picked it up and this was when it wasn't illegal to speak on mobile phones while driving. Can you believe it? It's that long ago. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the guy just said, uh, where are you? I said, I'm lost. I'm not coming. He said, no, where are you? I said, oh, I'm on this road. He went, what can you see? I said, oh, I can see a shell garage. He said, is it on your right or your left? I said, it's on my right. He said, okay, next roundabout, turn around, come back the way you were coming. And the guy basically guided me into uh, the car park of the office. So I was sort of, there was no getting away from it really. And that's how I ended up um, at the first interview I had for a recruitment job. Fantastic. And I, I'm assuming you took the job and the rest is history. Well, it, it wasn't always, that, it wasn't that straightforward actually. They, uh, well, the first interview I had, I, I sort of walked in and I was a bit nonchalant. You know, I, I couldn't be bothered to be there. I was thinking, how quickly can I get this over and done with? And, you know, the, the, what happened was I was confronted by this guy who looked super sharp. He asked some brilliant questions. You know, I'd had 14 interviews that week, same questions, same disinterested uh, interviewer, 
Um, but he asked some great questions. You know, he really wanted to know about who I was, you know, what my motivations were. And I thought, wow, you know, the guy really sort of engaged me um, really quickly. So I was quite keen actually leaving. I just, he completely 180'd me. I was gone in, wanted to get out and actually came out feeling quite good. But then um, it took him a while to make a decision. And in the meantime, I took a job doing door-to-door -door sales. Um, so it was about three weeks and a couple of interviews uh, further interviews before I got offered the job. Um, and after knocking doors in Leeds, selling uh, talk talk contracts, uh, I snapped their hand off. I bet. And talk talk, by the way, is a, is a mobile phone you know, provider, right? Or, uh, you know, correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At yeah, the time, okay. at the time, I think it was telephone services at the time. Telephone services, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. And so, how did things progress from there? So, the, because that wasn't in Glasgow, correct? You are you were were you still based in Wales or I was I was living in Leeds at the time. So Leeds, I got back okay. from got back from travelling, um, didn't really know what I was doing. A lot of my friends had sort of moved on and gone to university, got jobs mm -hmm. and things and uh I'd I'd met some friends in Sydney and they we we just all got on the phone and, and just said, Why don't we just go to Leeds and carry on the travelling uh vibe for a bit longer? So that's what we did and it also meant I was closer to um, Angela, who I've already mentioned. I met her when I was in Australia. She was in Durham, and I thought, you know, hour and a, hour and a bit from Durham to Leeds, this this could work out. So yeah, it just ended up in Leeds. Um, so that's that's where I started. Yeah, fantastic. And then, um, so what? In the, thinking about the your formative years in recruiting, um, what were <laughs> some of the kind of key? lessons or uh, experiences that really shaped, you know, th the recruitment consultant that you ultimately would become and, and sort of put you on this journey to success? It's a good question. Um, I, th I think the training I got when I first joined recruitment was was really good. There was a guy at, uh, I started with a company called Ellis Fairbank mm -hmm. in Leeds. Unfortunately, the company no longer exists. But at the time, they had this really, really good two-week training course um, delivered by a guy called uh, Chris Mercer-Jones. And it was, it was just really um, inspiring, you know, at the end of every day, me and the the other people on the on the course would be sort of running up the stairs to the sales floor to get on the phones and put all this stuff to work and so that was the start of it I think some really good training um, and in Alice Fairbank the way they did the way they ran the business was they gave you great training but then they'd stick you in a very broad sort of group I was in engineering and manufacturing I think at the time but then it was up to you to really find your own clients find your own candidates and. You know that that that's really good training for when you're in coming into recruitment. You know you got to fight for everything you get. Um, you don't get anything handed to you on a plate. And then I also had a really good manager who, at the time, I hated his guts, and I think he he knew this because he was he was persistent. Um, he would pull you up over every little detail, and I would find that very frustrating. But then. You know, hindsight's a, a wonderful thing, but when I look back, you know, that was really formative for me. You know, every time I'd ask a closed question on a, on the phone call, he'd, he had this meter-long ruler and he would tap me on the shoulder with it. 
I don't think you get away. I don't think you get away with that today. But you know, he—that's he, what he <laughs> would do. He would, he would, he would listen to all the calls. You know, he was there to manage and develop and get the best out of the people he was managing. You know, he didn't have any clients or candidates. That was his job, and and he was really good at it. A guy called Dave Hall, and um, you know, I think Dave trained a lot of really good recruiters who've gone on to do great things. And you know, I think. Dave's, you know, he's from Liverpool. He's a he's an Evertonian, and you know, thick skin. You know, if he upset you, he he wasn't gonna you know worry about it too much. And I think when you're trying to train uh, new recruiters, you know, you've just gotta be be tough. And he was, and uh, yeah, I think it was. I, I thank him now, and I should have thanked him then, but uh, I'm thanking him now That's if brilliant. he's listening. <laughs> I love the um, because you know people can get into habitual ways of asking questions and they can forget to ask an open question and that physical tap on the shoulder actually sounds quite useful to interrupt that pattern and re remind you oh yeah i need to ask an open question it's, I, i'm mm. trying to think of how you would replicate that today in a virtual environment um i guess yeah well we'll, we'll come on to how how you develop people at um taylor hopkinson but uh awesome so some initial good training uh, laid the the foundation. Any other kind of key experiences that shaped your career? I think I was also on the floor with a lot of great people. Um, you know, a couple of names come to mind. You know, you had um, John Tilbrook, who now runs a successful search business in Leeds. A guy called uh, Tony, who um, who was brilliant at what he did. He had the packaging market sewn up. There was um, there, there was just a lot of good recruiters, and I think what helped me was I was I was like a sponge, you know. I was listening to everybody. I was just trying to take as much as I could in from as many people as I could, and not not just the people on the floor either. You know, when I had candidates come in, I'd I'd go downstairs. The, the interview rooms were downstairs, and the sales floor was upstairs, and I'd, I'd go downstairs to to meet the candidate, and I'd come back two hours later, and David would be sitting there. Where have you been? And I was like, well, you know, there was a guy who came in. He's got 25 years of experience in this market. Uh, he had a lot of things to tell me. So, you know, I would, I would, if, if they're willing to spend the time, I was, I would, I would just suck as much information and knowledge and know-how out of everybody I could. And I think that was critical, really, and still is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then, how did this all lead to you founding your own business in two? Was it 2009? You guys. Correct. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I left Ellis Fairbank. Um, my my wife Angela uh, got a job in Glasgow, and originally I wasn't going to come. I'd heard all the terrible things about Glasgow that you hear, not having that, ever been here. Um, but eventually, I did come up, and I spoke to one of my clients, um, a guy called Danny Muir, who you know, played a huge role in my career and, and in my life and uh, who unfortunately passed away at a very, very young age last year. And, um, you know, he, I, I went to him for advice and I said, uh, you know, what, what should I do? And he said, you know, what you should do is start your own business. And I was, what, 26 at the time. I'd been doing recruitment for less than three years. And I thought, are you mad? You know, I, I, what in what world is is that a sensible thing to do? And um, and I, I just wasn't ready. I think he thought I was ready, but uh, I didn't think I was. So ultimately, he introduced me to um, uh, some guys at Eden Scott, 
a guy called uh, Guy Martin, and I met Guy, and I really got on with Guy. He's he's a really laid back character who had started this firm um, following his jo- his role as part of the management team that sold Melville Craig to Hudson. So they'd done their they'd done their time out, and they'd used the money to restart, and they set up this um, Scotland centric generalist recruiter, and he gave me the opportunity to come on board and set up the renewables desk for them. So I set up renewables for Alice Fairbank and they said, Hey, come and set that up for us and open the Glasgow office. Made me part of the med- of the management team at uh, Eden Scott. And I learned a huge amount and I had a really, really good time with those guys. Um, so it was after Amazing. that. So, and I think what led me to, I think the question you asked was what led me to setting up Taylor Hopkinson. And I think it was because, you know, and you asked me what was one of the formative um, things that happened. So one of the formative things that happened in the first place was I found the market I could really be passionate about very early. Um, you know, I was scrapping about, you know, you left your own devices to find your own way at Eden, at uh, Ellis Fairbank. And I was driving down the M6 and I saw these two turbines on the side of the road. And I was thinking, wow, you know, this is something that's going to be big. You know, I, I'd always been climate conscious. I'd always been sustainability conscious, and I, I always believed that at some point we would find ourselves in the position we are today. I always believed that, um, so therefore I dedicated myself to that market, and really, you know, loved the the people, the industry, the technology. It was it was just so exciting, and um, everyone's so nice. I, I dedicated myself to that. So then, when I came to Eden Scott, and I did that at Eden Scott. After being there for a couple of years, I was trying to build this renewable energy brand on a on an international basis. You know, I was bringing in project director roles, sea um, level roles in Germany, in France, in other parts of the world, and they were sitting sort of on the Eden Scott platform next to very Scottish centric roles in loads of different industry sectors. So it was, you know, my my the brand I was trying to create was getting diluted, and it just got to a point where I was sort of I was finding it very frustrating, um, and I and I would I would go home and I would sort of complain about this to Angela, and and then one day she just sort of turned around and she just said, you know what, can you just stop complaining and just do something? And I just thought, yeah, you know, I sound like a loser, you know, all I'm doing is complaining, I'm not actually taking any affirmative action here, and. I just went in um, January 2009 and said, look, I'm sorry, I I need to go and do this. And, you know, fair play to Guy. His response was, well, I knew you were going to do it at some point. It was a bit sooner than I thought you would, but, you know, go for it. And, you know, I I, I really respected and uh, appreciated him doing that. And, you know, there was never any don't touch these clients or you can't do this or you can't do that. They they understood that's what I needed to do and, and let me go ahead and do it. Brilliant. They're, they're, that's such a great group of people. I um, I actually spent my recruiting career at Melville Craig, um, mm-hmm. and so I know Guy and and Michelle and Chris Logue was was my boss and uh, yeah. had a big impact on on my career. So yeah, I have huge uh, respect and ad, you know um, admiration for those guys. Yeah. So, um, so that's fantastic. So you, you finally realized, Hey, wait a second, I really need to build something here. And, uh, like how did things go from there? Cause did you, you know, starting out your own business as a founder, 2009, did you imagine like 
12 years later, you'd be, you know, selling the majority shareholding in your business. So was that like the plan from the beginning to scale and sell something or like what, what was your goal when you, when you set up the business? That, that was exactly what we were trying to do. It was, um, that was always the plan, um, you know, build it, make it valuable, sell. And I mean, we, 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 we did private equity first. So we sold, you know, 51% of the, well, 60% of the business to private equity. Then we did the latest deal with 72%. So we've, we've done it twice. And it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, maybe we'll talk a bit about that later. But um, yeah, it was always the plan, Mark. You know, it was, always, it was always renewables and it was always, it was never a lifestyle business. It was always build it to create value in order to, to get an exit. Amazing. And um, so that is very challenging. It's not easy to do. There's a reason why 80 or 90% of recruitment companies globally are micro businesses. They're very, very small, like a lot of them, one or two or three people, maybe up to five or 10 people. But there is this sort of ceiling or, or plateau that many firms get to, and then they kind of just stay uh, in that sort of size. Um, what do you think were some of the keys that enabled you to really create that value and that growth? I, sh I should have thought this through. I should have anticipated this question. Um, okay, I think there's a few things. I think, first of all, I've got a brilliant team around me that I trust implicitly. And I think I, I did a good job of um, incentivizing them and making sure that they felt that this wasn't, this was their business just as much as it was mine. And in that scenario, you know, it's not just me pulling in that direction. You've, you've got a, a team of eight, nine, 10 people pulling in that direction with you. That's essential. I think not always needing to be the star of the show, I think is important, you know, allowing, delegating responsibility and authority and allowing other people to take the spotlight and make something theirs and believe it's theirs. Um, and I also think, you know, being, trying to be humble and understand that you don't know it all, you don't have all the answers and you need to go and ask for help. And, you know, part of the reason we did the private equity deal is because, you know, we'd, we'd had some really good growth. We got to, I think we were at sort of 23, 24 people. Yet I realized that if I wanted to scale further, I needed help. So when we went out to private equity, you know, when I spoke to the corporate finance um, company, Rycroft Glenton, and I was working with Carl Swansbury, who, who's really great at this sort of um, low sort of small to mid-market recruitment business, um, corporate finance. I said to him, look, I need you to find me someone who's going to come and help me scale this thing. And I was very lucky in that um, Longacre International um, came along. They were interested. It was really lucky that uh, one of their senior investment directors was a guy called Jonas Rave, whose dad happened to be um, the ex-chairman of the European Wind Association. So oh, Wow. So he had that insight into the market and the potential. In addition to that, one of their key uh, principles that they had running a couple of their other investments was a guy called Stuart Cantley. And Stuart had been the CEO of Swift, 
who ultimately sold to Air Energy to become Air Swift. And then he also had a stint as CEO at Mawson Group. So, you know, it was, a, it was exactly what I wanted. I needed you know, people who knew how to scale staff in businesses um, in a big way. So they came in and they really helped. They taught me a lot of stuff uh, early on, which helped me to then put in the structure and the process that helped to scale the business further. This is fascinating because, like, how many people have you guys got at the moment then? So last count, I think we're up to around 90, 92. 90, okay. So, and and at what stage did you get this PE deal? You were around 23 people. How, yeah. wh- what year was that? That was in 2017. Okay, wow. So between 2017 and 2021, it, just starting 2022, you've gone from 23 people to 90, 90 people. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned like, it wasn't just the the money that you wanted to uh, accelerate your growth, but also you needed uh, we, we didn't need money and, and help. Oh, you didn't we need did, money. We we didn't need money. Uh, okay. the, you know, we could have done without the cash. We we yeah. it was the help. It was the expertise. Ah, it was the okay. uh, it was the the war scars. Um, you know, that's what we needed. Yeah. Absolutely. So, c- can you talk a little more about that? Like, what were some of the key things that your advisors through Long Anchor International uh, really helped you put in place or what were some of the things you said they taught me a lot what were some of those things I think the the importance of a, a very clear and well-defined management structure mm-hmm. so how is the business set up and then a very clearly defined management process Mm-hmm. Who manages who, when, what meetings do you have, when do you have them, what's the content of those meetings, mm-hmm. uh, and you know what are they for, making sure that they all had value. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, you know, we really professionalized um, the board pack mm-hmm. that we were using. You know, we introduced, we spent a lot of time looking at KPIs, um, mm-hmm. you know, which ones were important, which ones were core, which ones were the real drivers of the, of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we did a lot of work on that. Um, and the other thing they did as well is I was, I was chasing growth at the time. I wanted to grow. I wanted to grow fast. So I was thinking, you know, maybe I should diversify and do a little bit of nuclear, or maybe I should do a little bit of, um, hydro or something like this. And the the one, the key thing that, that, um, Stuart in particular and Stanny, who was the, the principal at Longacre said is, you know, stick at what you're good at. Stick at what you're passionate about. Stick at the thing that you've got a, you know, a dominant position in, and don't be distracted. Don't mm. chase growth for growth's sake. Because mm-hmm. if you if you do stay focused and you do stay committed to the markets that you're in, um, especially the markets we're in, you know, the the growth would come. And lo and behold, in the last two years, that that growth really has come. And our ability to capitalize on the opportunity is because we stayed true to what we set up to be. That's really powerful and really important because on the one hand, I can see the argument for diversification and I've heard MDs of some other recruitment companies explain why they've created different you know, divisions or, or brands within the business. But um, personally, I probably 
uh, come down on your side of the of the fencing regards to I'd rather dominate a niche and be the leader in that rather than dabble in a half a dozen different things. I think, you know, but what I, I would agree. And I, and I think with in, you know, the world we live in today with LinkedIn and social networks and, and everything else, the, you know, it's very different to when I started in recruitment where the, the, the clients didn't really know where to go to get the candidates, right? It needed someone to sit on a phone and bash through numbers and network and and get get to the people that they needed to get to. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of LinkedIn. I think it takes a lot of that fun out of it. But um, so so the skill now is not that. Yeah. So if if that's not the skill, what is the skill or the the value add that you bring? And the value add you bring is that you give the client the next level of data on those individuals that LinkedIn will not give them. I, you know, what are their motivations? Where will they work? Where won't they work? What are they really good at? What don't they enjoy doing? Um, you know, what's their reputation in the market with the customer base you're trying to attract? Mm-hmm. That doesn't appear on LinkedIn. The only way you're going to get to that granular level of understanding of your market population is if you specialize and you're in it day in, day out. However, you know, that's what I chose. But the the flip side of being so specialist is if you are chasing growth, typically you've got to do it geographically, which means you've mm-hmm. got to go international, which brings a huge amount of other challenges to overcome. Got it. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge, and it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned £5,000 per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible £20,000, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. You mentioned some of the key things that the PE firm helps you with. Board pack, by the way, could you explain that for people who don't know what that means? So every month we would we would create a, a document for which would be used at the board meeting. And that document covers, um, you know, both performance to date, typically for the year um, and the quarter and the month. Uh, but also looks forward, so you'll have um, you'll have your P and L, your balance sheet, your cash flow. You'll have your forward pipeline projections, and really, it's uh, it's the document that gives the board a really detailed snapshot of where you're at, both now and 
the expected position over the next typically three to six months um, so they they can advise you on how to go about it. Got it. And what kind of were the key changes you made in terms of management structure, KPIs? Because I'm assuming to get to 20 plus people, you already would have figured a lot of that out. I'm sure like you would have KPIs, you would have you know, your, your structure in place. So what were the key changes that really um, allowed you to experience that uptick in, in, uh, in growth? We, we had them. I think we probably had too many. I think mm. what, they, what they made you do is sort of distill it down to the key mm. KPIs, Right. So rather, rather yeah, the word to, key. <laughs> you know, a lot yeah, of uh, the key, key, key yeah. <laughs> performance. Not not just all the all the metrics that tell you about performance, yeah. but the ones that matter. So, for example, I, I'll give you an example. Um, right now in our business, I only really look at three KPIs because from those three KPIs, all other KPIs are driven. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what are the three then? So it's, it's business development activity. Mm-hmm. It's CV sent in his first interviews. Okay. Because everything else can be derived from that in my view. Mm-hmm. Because so take, for example, if, if you focus everyone in your business on uh, new jobs, for example, mm-hmm. people might bring in a load of new jobs, but there's, no, but there's no guarantee that those jobs are jobs you can fill, jobs you want to fill, jobs you mm-hmm. should be filling especially as a specialist, you know, you, you, in, in this dry, in this um, desire to meet that target you've been set, you know, people lose quality. However, if you focus on the first interviews, in order to get that number of first interviews, by logic tells you, you have to have a certain amount of jobs to, to be able to deliver that. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about the new jobs. Focus on the first interviews. Then only if the first interview metric begins to slide, then you look at why is that sliding? Is it because we don't have enough jobs? Does that make sense? Yeah, so as a, as a manager, as a manager, you're not getting diluted and distracted and spread across so many different things. You, you, you're able to focus um, your energy in, into fewer things and, and do a better job. Great. And the business development uh, metric, what is that? Is it Meetings? Is it conversations? Like, what's the number so that you're looking at? So it, it used to be, it used to be um, business development calls. You know, yeah. successful calls where you speak to a human, not leave a message, or all mm-hmm. those things. But, but in in COVID, we and even before COVID, we sort of changed it to say, you know, in in this day and age, um, you know, sometimes a successful business development email can be counted in a business development activity mm-hmm. not not mass mail or you know we don't we don't mass mail as a, as a rule anyway but it, they've got to be specific and targeted and have some thinking and st- strategy behind them and then also um business meetings um business mm-hmm. development meetings with clients yeah. so we we, l- we lump them into bd activity because if somebody's okay. if somebody's on a four-day trip to visit half a dozen clients yeah they, they could still do some bd calls but it's likely they're going to be able to do a lot less than if they sat in the office. So we, we just tried to make it, look, we don't care. Well, yeah, we're not so hung up on, was it a call? Was it a meeting? Was it a really strategic um, email? It's just, are you doing those things on a regular basis? Got it. Fantastic. Um, 
So talking about international expansion then, so you, you made the point, like if you're going to be really a uh, specialist in a, in a niche market, then there's a finite number of companies, say in Scotland or even in the UK, who you can serve. So therefore, if you want to grow, you have to, uh, yeah. you have to look at a larger geographic and go, go international. So at what point did you kind of make that decision? And then what were the key challenges in pursuing the, the international growth? So I made that decision about probably 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. So we were, we, was, we were struggling to, well, we weren't, well, we were still growing pretty fast actually, but I, I, again, I was always chasing extra growth. And what we found, if you looked at the biggest clients in our market, as you say, a lot of them were in Spain, a lot of them were in the States and my thinking was, well, let's just take our story and implant it into these new locations and and do the same. And one of the things that the private equity company also did, now that you remind me, was they came into the business. And at the time, I had a team in Houston, which was brand new. I had a uh, couple of people in Mexico, brand new. I had a team in Madrid, about a year or so old. Uh, I had a team in London that was that was struggling to grow at the time. Um, and I had the, the the office in Glasgow HQ that was we were trying to grow, and they sort of came in and went, "You're gonna you're gonna have a heart attack before you before you're forty if you carry on this way. You can't you cannot do this." And plus, the business wasn't big enough to sustain it. He said, "They said you just got to make some tough decisions here," and the tough decisions were we we decided to change our approach to the states and we closed that down. Um, we closed London and brought the London team up to Glasgow and let a couple of them work remotely. Um, and I kept, I kept Spain. I also had, had sort of invested in a team to go out after that diversification. So I had a team in central London getting paid a lot of money to go and find contract work in hydro and nuclear and all the rest of it. And it just wasn't working. I'd spent too much money too soon. And I just wasn't as interested in that. I wasn't passionate about it. I was doing it because I thought it was what I should do. So I shut that down as well. So in fact, you know, the year after they bought us, it was a big, big step back in order to go forward. And it was the right, all the right choices, but it was so hard, you know, having to let people go that you'd sold them the dream. Uh, you know, they were really trying their best to make things happen. And yeah, it was, it was, it was horrible. I'd love to explore this further because it seems counterintuitive and it seems like it taking that being willing to take that what seems to be a step back in order to actually improve the business would not come naturally to most entrepreneurs um <laughs> so what was that thought process like and how did you that must have been a really really tough decision how did you make that decision that like we're going to streamline the operations and refocus in order to a- accelerate. I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark. You know, I, I resisted it hard. You know, I, I, I care a huge amount for the people that work in this business. And it, it was just anathema to me. We don't let people go. We grow. How, how, what, what's the point in letting people go? So it did take, and, you know, I had a very skilled chairman in that he didn't come in and tell me what to do. He would just suggest what I should do and let me get there in my own time. And it, and it probably took longer than it should have, if I'm honest. But 
ultimately the writing was on the wall i was i was i wasn't seeing my kids i wasn't seeing my family i was on you know i'd be in madrid one week houston the next week i'd tag on a trip to mexico i'd go to london for a few days the following week and it was just unsustainable you know it was just unsustainable not just for me but for the business you know to have uh, a business which was by that point about 30 30 people maybe 35 people spread across seven or eight offices just didn't make sense. So you did ultimately scale internationally. So what was the difference the second time round when you, you know, how did you do it differently the next time so that it was sustainable? So we, we always, um, so there's a couple of things to that. So one, because we refocused on our core markets, which in renewables, the strategy we used then was to go into the new markets with our clients. Right and go with them um, from a place of strength, UK, Spain, wherever that was at the time. And you prove the concept, you prove the model, you know, is this a viable business model? Is there enough um, in the market? Is the political regime stable enough? Are the clients that we followed in planning to stay? How are they finding life on the ground? And essentially, I, I've become a little less gung-ho and a bit more clinical around my thinking and methodical. And always to, yeah, and always to go in once you've proven that there is a business there. And that's what we did with Taiwan. It's what we're, we've done now with um, the US. Uh, Spain, I, I always believed that was the right thing to be. So I, I resisted calls to maybe think about culling that. I said no. And I think it was the right choice because we've got a great team now that have grown really, really well over the last five or six years. And um, yeah, I, I think that, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, de- no, definitely. And going with clients, I think is, makes total sense, like to de- base your decision on that rather than, you know, uh, other factors. So that's cool. What The other thing that struck me when you said the offices that were struggling early on or where you were spread too thin is you mentioned they were all kind of relatively new teams and the companies that I've seen that have successfully done this have actually um, key people from the business have gone to those locations in order to like almost like the Roman Empire like send you know Mm -hmm. their top general to that place in order to um, to drive growth in that area rather than try and do it at a distance, because you're, how do you impart your culture, your methodology, your processes, your, you know, differentiators to a, a brand new team when you, you're, you're so far away? Um, yeah. To what extent did that play a part? Yes, it did. It did play a part. So, yeah, in all the ones that have actually, have, have actually succeeded, that there's been an element of that. So, we had a Spanish guy came to work with us in Glasgow called Hector. He um, ended up going back to Madrid and we set the business up with him. So yeah, we had that anchor um, with Asia Pacific. We had a great guy who works for us, uh, still works for us now, David Craig. He went out there with his wife. His wife got a job with Edrington um, over there. And we were like, great, awesome. You can be our man in Havana so to speak. And uh, he did. And uh, But again, even then I said, look, um, at the time, the board was saying to me, just let him go. You've got enough to do. 
don't worry about it. Let it. And I said, no, I, I, I don't think that's right. And, you know, I think David's a talented guy who can do things for us. And mm. I went and, you know, me and David had a very frank discussion. I said, David, you know, I'm, I'm spending a bullet here. Please, we have to make this work. And he absolutely did. Last year, he was top biller. This year, I think he was a close second. The guy's just been brilliant. But what he, but the most valuable thing he did for, for us is when we then put the team into Taiwan, he was this helping us get, as you say, the culture, the way of doing things, the, the systems and processes all lined up. Um, so that was great. And then with the States, we've got a, a guy, Jeff, who was actually the first hire at Taylor Hopkinson. He's always had an ambitious to, ambition to go with the family. We've been looking at the right timing for years and years and years. Now is the right timing without a shadow of a doubt. And he and his family will be moving out there very shortly. Um, prior to COVID, he was meant to go, but that meant uh, we had to delay slightly, unfortunately. Yes, of course. All right, that's so cool. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. As you've accelerated growth, what have been some of the other challenges or um, pitfalls that you've had to navigate? I, I think there's, there's, there's quite a few, actually. And I think I've heard a few of your guests speak about it in the past as well, is maybe not put enough investment and time into the, the middle and the back office early enough. You're sort of so hell-bent on sales and placements and NFI that, you know, making sure that the teams that allow that to happen are well resourced. I probably would have gone it harder, quicker, spent more money on it. And I, and I think part of the reason that we didn't is we got this wonderful chief operating officer called Fiona McRae, who anything you asked her to do, she'd just say, yeah. And she would just go and do it, whether it was finance, whether it was facilities, whether it was recruitment research, you name it, nothing was too much. She'd have a go at it. And the vast majority of the time, she'd do a bloody good job. But then it got to a point where we could really see things were creaking and I, and we had to sit down. I was saying, Fiona, we need, we need to sit down now and you need to create a grid and you need to write down what do you do every day? What do you do every week, month, quarter, year? And she did it. And it took like three sides of 84 to get it all down. But then, <laughs> <laughs> then 
But then, you know, it came to light that Fiona's running this business, which is now turning over 10 million plus and, you know, up 1.52 million um, NFI. And she was still the person answering the phone. And I said, wow. you, you can't, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You, you cannot do that. Someone else needs to do that. Um, so through that process, we, you know, just by sort of crossing off the things that someone else could do or should do or can do, the business, the, the job description just wrote themselves. And then Fiona was left with the critical things that only she could do, that she had to do, the, the really important stuff. And I think if I had my time again, I would probably sit down and, well, we do now, we do that a lot more frequently, where yes. we ask people every six months to sit down and do that exercise. And I think that also drives growth because then, you know, you get people coming under those people to do those jobs. Because as you scale, those jobs, which once were just too... 5% of your time almost start to become a lot bigger. So I think that is one of the things, one of the challenges and how we've overcome it. Finance, always a challenge, I think, for entrepreneurs is seen as a sort of uh, an, a necessary evil a lot of the time. Um, however, I think we, we finally got it right and we've got our, our FD, you know, the amount of work she gets through is astounds me you know she's been through now two private a private equity deal and a trade deal and she's grown her own team now up to sort of seven eight people and a 50 million turnover business that she's running day in day out you know paying up to 350 400 contractors on a monthly basis you know i i've got nothing but gratitude and admiration for the amount of work those guys get through and i probably could have made it easier by recognizing what that was going to become and invest in earlier and then that might have made things a lot better for everybody um so the question i, th I think the question you asked if i remember rightly was challenges in Key growth challenges, yeah. and i think it's just being patient i think a lot of entrepreneurs the reason you're That's an entrepreneur a tough one. Is, is you're driven and you're impatient for success and and looking back looking back on it now um, I probably wasted a huge amount of effort uh, and energy and sleepless nights that I never needed to to waste. Um, because in hindsight, if I'd just sort of been patient and then believed things would come, yeah, we, we, we wouldn't have wasted so much time, energy and effort. You, you need to slow down. It's the old uh, African saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And right. I was I was dragging everybody with me at a pace that just wasn't, realistic um and it probably wasn't very very nice for them to be to have someone dragging them telling them that they should be doing things better or faster or you know and and yeah it wasn't helpful sometimes uh, i think it's important yeah to understand the expectation that you're putting on other people and that it's not always the right thing to do what um, prompted this latest deal uh, with Brunel? Like, what, what what led up to that, and why did you feel that that was the next right step for you guys? A few things. So, I suppose. So, so one of the things is that I'd always said that's what we would do. Okay. So when I you when mean, I had, did yeah. you know that that was the company that you wanted? Uh, like, were you imagining Brunel all along, or? So, so what I mean by that is when I um, when I brought a number of people into the business, I said to them, mm. "We're going to build this business, and we're going to uh, this." So, between 
set up in 2009 and about 2013, 14-ish, um, a few key people I hired, I said, look, I'd like you to join. I'm going to give you options. And in four years or five years, whenever they came from now, I promise you, we will go to market and we will get whatever offers we can or can't get. And then we'll sit down together and take a view on whether we should do it or not. So one of the reasons I did it is because I told everyone and promised everybody that I would. Yes. Absolutely. Um, because otherwise the, the option, you know, there's a lot of people, I think options get banded about and there's this thing like, oh, they're not worth the paper they're written on. You know, it's golden handcuffs that don't exist. So I was really keen to say, look, you, you, you need to believe in this. You need to trust me yes. that this will be something. If you work hard, it will be something. So um, I did that for the private equity round. And then a lot of people then converted to equity. And then when we did that round, we part of the agreement I struck was that they would put another option scheme together. And we invited a, another, I think there was seven, seven or eight people into that option scheme, maybe nine. And again, I said to them, look, in four or five years' time, we will go again. And by the way, you can be more sure this time because there's a private equity guys who ain't sticking around more than seven years. So right. um, but you can you can count on it. So it was it was time basically to go and look. Yes. However, I'd been I'd been pushing them to go earlier because I could see that we had I think the leading position in renewable energy globally. Others might argue with you. I can think of a few, but I, I believe that. And I could see this market expanding exponentially in front of our eyes on various continents at pace. And I just thought, you know, my my just to go I have always wanted to be a part of the best renewable energy recruitment business in the world. Whatever I do is always geared to that goal. Simple as that. So if you've got this market that's expanding exponentially, you've got a lot of new players piling in, you've got a lot of new entrants into the industry coming in um, from oil and gas and other industries where they don't know us. And I just thought, if we want to remain the best, you've got to scale and you've got to scale fast. And you've got to have a global footprint. You've got to be able to service the clients where they need you. You've got to be able to offer compliance solutions in as many places that they're going to be as, as possible. And could we have done that ourselves? Possibly, probably not. Not at the pace required. And, you know, we because we're niche and we had to go global, you know, we the, the compliance effort was just becoming huge. So, again... Those are all the reasons, right? One, I promised I'd do it. Two, the compliance thing was becoming really difficult to manage. Therefore, someone like a Brunel, perfect. You know, they are they've got the world beating compliance system and they've got 120 offices in 40 countries around wow. the world. They've got a 1,500 recruiters, they've got 12,000 contractors active around the world, and they're focused on it, pretty much engineering and technical disciplines you know they i think that you know they put people into pioneering projects that's what they do and that's what we see ourselves as doing right we put the best people into the best renewable energy projects with the best clients that are going to get the best projects built which will have the biggest impact on the climate change fight so i think there was just a perfect match you know they wanted to be in renewables they they announced to the markets they they listed in Amsterdam, that they were going to follow eight um, strategic verticals. Renewables was one of them, and they were going to there was going to be acquisition. And they, you know, they'd gone out to find the best 
possible business. And you know, they, they they say this to us, and I hope it's true that they said we were the best option they found. So that was nice, just to get a little bit of sort of market uh, verification of the Kool Aid we were drinking at the time. Amazing. Um, so yeah, it just all seemed to really match, and you know, we're only six weeks in, but the culture of collaboration, um, the culture of openness is exactly the same as ours and we're already doing business together we're already you know sharing information and yeah we're, we're so excited about what this could be that's awesome tom were there uh specific things that your pe partners helped you to do specifically to enhance the uh enterprise value of the business in order to maximize value when it came to being acquired Loads, loads of things. Um, so we've already talked about the specialization. They would say, look, yeah. if you want to be valued, you've got to be specialized. They drove um, the split between contract and perm. You know, it's got to be 50-50 plus to contract to get yeah. the, the multiples that, that you, you want to get if you're maximizing value. And they really taught me a lot of lessons around cash you know, cash is king. How do you manage cash? How do you forecast it? How do you take care of it? Um, those were the, I think those were the key things that they, they taught me. And as an English lit grad, who'd only really been a recruitment consultant before starting a business, I knew nothing about, you know, corporate financing and all the rest of it. And they really helped me understand how to best structure that for the business, which was the other key thing really. Fantastic. Um, Tom, there's so many more things we could talk about. Like, uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Things that you mentioned about building amazing teams and, you know, um, I mean, that's a whole, we could spend an hour just on just on that. But um, if you were a mentor advisor to a recruitment entrepreneur that was earlier in their journey, say 10 years ago, uh, compared to where you are now, like they've got a small team and they want to follow in your footsteps and like really scale massively and enjoy the success you, you've you had, like what would be the best advice that you could, you could give them in order to uh, give them the best shot at this? Uh, put me on your board and pay me a massive fee. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, no, I, I think what I would say to them is make sure your vision is clear for you and just stick to it tooth and nail don't get distracted don't get seduced by anything stick to it focus on it um and believe believe in it and and also have confidence that if you do that the growth and the success will come don't 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 force it too much because sometimes you force it too much you break it it'll come that's what i would have said to myself yeah (laughs) Awesome. Yes. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Tom, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. I'd love uh, to. So thank, thank you, you so much for you know sharing your incredible journey. It's really interesting. I'm excited to see what happens next. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.